Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 111. Psalm 111, which I believe is on page 603 of those uh, Bibles that you'll have right there. 603. So Psalm 111 is the first of a group of psalms that begin with the same word in Hebrew, which we all actually know. So you already know Hebrew. Um, Hallelujah. So all of these psalms begin with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And um, Psalm 111 is actually particularly connected to the psalm right after it, Psalm 112. They are connected in language, in themes, and in structure. Um, You can think of Psalm 111 is like the telescope, which is focused on something big so that you can notice it. And the Psalm 112 is more like a microscope that is looking at something small and really magnifying it. So Psalm 111 is telling the big story. And Psalm 112 is the little story of the individual person. Um, So we're focusing on Psalm 111 this morning. Um, One other thing to note about Psalm 111, it's an acrostic, which means that every line starts with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Why am I telling you this? There's no quiz. So um, the reason that they would, that uh, a psalm like that is designed like that, one of the reasons, is for ease of memorization. So um, often much of the Bible would be memorized by ancient Jews, but um, some of the psalms in particular are structured in a way to make it easy. So if you're trying to remember where you're at in the psalm, you just go, oh, I just said this letter, so I'm on D, which means I'm next to E, so it's easy. Um, for us, who, with the exception of hallelujah, don't know any Hebrew, what does that do? Well, it indicates that this is a psalm that's worth remembering. I always would advocate for memorizing scripture, um, but that's not, not what I mean necessarily here. I mean that what Psalm 111 tells us is core to what we need to live a good life. Okay? So as we read Psalm 111, I just want to ask for just one little thing. Um, Keep your eyes on the word works. Try to keep track of how often you see that. So now this is uh, God's word to us in Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Would you pray with me?
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've opened your word. We've looked and we've seen what you've said. And we ask, O Lord, that you would open our hearts. And even as we are listening and our ears are open, we ask that our hearts would be receptive to what you have to say to us. And that what I say would be faithful to that. That anything that I say that is not faithful to it would be forgotten. And I trust, Lord, that you will use these words for the blessing of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that's essential to being human is that we tell stories. No other creature on earth, no matter how much you interrogate, like a squirrel or something, um, they're not going to tell you a story. Uh, And for us, telling a story is actually something we can't really make it a day without doing. Um, If you talk to a friend and they ask you how your day was, you tell them a story. If I ask you about your childhood, you're not going to give me just facts. I was born here. I I moved here. I lived here. You're going to tell me a story. So humans, just by nature, we are story creatures. We're people who tell stories. Um, The Bible is God's true story of the world. It's the true story of the world. It's taking all of our little stories and it's uniting them into one big story. And it's telling us this is the story of which you are a part. And Psalm 111 is a big summary of the main points of that story. It's a story about God and about his works. And We need to be reminded that this is the story. We need to remember that this is the story. Because we often don't remember the story. We don't live in the story that the Bible tells about the world. We don't live so often as if this world is made by God or that Jesus came into the world to save the world. We often live um, the same story that our neighbors live, just a story of ordinary life, uh, and you make of it what you can. And we don't often situate our little story in the big story. So this is the invitation that Psalm 111 presents this morning. Remember our story. We remember our story This is the story of God and his works, and it's the story of God's people. So, this morning, I want to give three reasons why we should remember our story. We remember our story. We must remember our story. First thing is because God works greatly. I asked you earlier to keep an eye on how often the word works shows up. Did anybody happen to count How many times? Okay, yes. Five times? Five times. Oh, six times. Okay, well, that's different from what I got, but okay. Um, I guess it depends on how you're counting. Um, Five or six times. Um, The point is, there are only ten verses. And if in half as many times, it's talking about works. That should tick something off in our brains. 
something's going on. Something with works is important. And so let's look. Okay, the Psalms often talk about God's works. Let's look at what these works are. And in other Psalms, we get it, like Psalm 104 famously is a Psalm of creation. So God's works in creation. This Psalm is really mostly about God's work in redemption, in salvation. And so um, we're just going to look really quickly uh, at verse 2 and verse 3. We'll see a couple of things about these works. Um, so first of all, verse 2, first word, great. Great are the works of the Lord. They're also studied, and they, they're able to be delighted in. They're full of splendor and majesty. And then if we look in verse 4, they're called wondrous. In verse 6, have, they have power. So these works are, as verse 2 puts it, great. The works that God has done for his people are great. So the first thing I want to say is we're remembering our story. We're remembering that God works greatly. Um, that means that there is a time for giving thanks and praise to God for that parking space or for the small moment-to-moment provisions. But there's also a time to give thanks for the big things, to recognize the great works that God has done, to meditate on the big things that he has done in history, in our lives, so that we can praise him appropriately. Because that's exactly what this does. Um, If we look at what the psalmist does in the first verse, he thanks God with his whole heart. He praises God in the midst of the congregation. And greatness, the greatness of these works, is what prompts that wholehearted devotion. It prompts loving attention. So um, when I was a seminary student, I lived in St. Louis. And if you don't know, they have a really good art museum there, and it's free. So I went, and um, they had a painting there, which I'm sure you are, uh, you'll recognize it if you like Google it later, but um, it's by Claude Monet, and it's called Water Lilies. And for a while, the St. Louis Art Museum had the actual painting, the one that Monet painted, not like a print or a copy, the actual one, in their art museum. And now the thing about water lilies is that it's in a style that's called impressionistic, which for most people just means like, oh, I could have drawn that. But what this actual, this painting, um, if you Google it, you can look at it and say, oh, there's a painting of some water and some lilies. I get why it's called water lilies. But when you're in the room with that painting, and you realize it's bigger than one of these screens. And you get close to it, as close as they'll let you get. And you see the brush strokes, the detail, the difference of the colors, and the way everything works together so that you can immerse yourself in just watching that painting. So when I, when I went to the St. Louis Art Museum and I saw that great work, did I just walk by, kind of peek at it go, oh, walking. No, I planted myself there and I stared at it. I studied it 
And I found that I was able to delight in it more. So this is what Psalm 111 is pointing us to, the first thing. God works greatly. We must remember our story because God works greatly. And when we look at God's great works, and when we study them, we find that we start to delight in them more. We start to want to praise God wholeheartedly for the works that he's done. So if you want to see the greatness of God's works, study them. Study them. Meditate on them. Look at them often. Consider them and give thanks for them. And you will start to find over time as you do that, that you begin to delight in God more and more and more. Because greatness prompts loving attention. So the, the first reason that we must remember our story is because God works greatly. And when we attend to those works, we find delight. But if we're going to study something, we can't just do that in general, right? We have to get specific. So, and that's exactly what the psalmist does next. Um, so God works greatly. But the second thing is that God works historically. God works historically. So the author of the psalm is going to get specific about what God does. If you look at verses 4, 5, and 6, these are uh, basically a condensed Old Testament. So um, if, we, if we look at those three verses, it's like we've got the whole Old Testament squeezed into three verses. It's really astonishing. Um, so we'll just go through these briefly. So uh, verse 4. We read that he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So how is that a condensed summary of something in the Old Testament? Well, when we consider what the Bible calls God's wondrous works, the rest of the Bible is going to look back on a moment in the story of God's people and say that is God's wondrous works. And that act, that moment, is the exodus And it's the only moment um, where we have this, specifically, it's called a memorial. Uh, Passover is one of the first um, memorial rituals that the Old Testament people of God have as a way of remembering this wondrous act. And if that's not convincing yet, um, in the second part of that verse, the Lord is gracious and merciful, comes directly from the mountain of Sinai when God declares to Moses that he is gracious and merciful. So verse 4 is all about the exodus and God's deliverance of his people out of slavery. So that's the first historical thing that God has done. The second thing, if we look in verse 5, we see that um, God provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. This one, um, if we're starting with the exodus, what's the next thing that happens to the people of God? when they get out of slavery, as they're brought into the wilderness. And um, we might wonder how it's connected that um, God provides food for his people and he remembers his covenant. How are those two things connected? Well, God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12. And that promise was that this old man, 100 years old, would be a great nation, that through his offspring, he would become a great nation. 
And now here's that nation, 400 years later, and they've been brought out of slavery. They've been rescued. So things are looking good. And then they're brought into the desert. And suddenly we're wondering, Lord, we asked what the Israelites asked. Did you bring us out here to kill us? This is the desert. There's no food. There's no water. How is the Lord going to make good on his covenant if his people are brought into a desert? And so he provides food. He remembers his covenant forever. He doesn't let his people die in the wilderness. So, this ultra-condensed Old Testament. We've so far seen the exodus, and we've seen the provision of manna in the wilderness. And now, next thing, is they finally end that period of wandering in the wilderness. And they come to the land, and they enter it. This is part of the promise to Abraham, was not just that he would be a great people, but that that people would have a place. And so this is, imagine just for a second, growing up and not having a real home. A place on the earth to say, this is where I'm from, or this is where I belong. So these are the people of God, our former slaves. They've never known a real place to call home. And now they're being brought into this place. And the thing is, there's already people there. There's already been people there. And so God is going to bring his people into this land that's already occupied. And these former slaves, they're not soldiers. They've never fought before. If you read the accounts um, in in Exodus and uh, the rest of the Pentateuch and then into um, Joshua, what you'll see is that uh, they're not using like real weapons. They use farm tools for some of these things. So just picture this. This is the people of God, and they've been provided for, and now they're at the, the threshold of the land. And God is going to give them the inheritance that he promised. And that's why, it's, why his works are called powerful, because he's taking these farmers, former slaves, and he's turning them into warriors who conquer a land and make it their home. So, um, this is how God works historically. When the people of God, uh, when Israel would think about what God has done, they would look to the Exodus and say, God delivered us. They would look to the, um, the provision in the wilderness and say that God provided for us. And they would look to the land and say that God promised us and he made good on that promise. So, don't read this like a history book. I want you to read Psalm 111 and this condensed history in particular. Actually, all of the Old Testament. Read it like a family history. I don't know if you've seen these, um, these ads. I don't know why I see them. Um, but there are these ads for Ancestry.com and they started doing a new ad campaign where they talk to celebrities and uh, they interview them, and then they do this background research about their families. And it's fascinating, because here's this famous person, like, oh, I recognize you from Law and & Order. And um, that person gets this like, detailed history of their family. And it starts with, I mean, they go only a certain distance back, but um, 
Your great-grandfather was an orphan at 11 in Italy. And somehow, he made it across the ocean, and he started a business, and he started a family, and now you're here, and you're famous. Just to, and the, the funny thing is that in every single one of those examples, what happens to these celebrities when they hear this story? Can you guess? They weep because they realize this is their story. The, the message that the story that they've been telling themselves is I'm famous because I did good things or because I caught a break. And then they read this story and they realize I didn't do that. I'm not here because of what I did. I have an ancestor who suffered, who went through so much to bring me here. So this is the, um, the story that we're in. When we look at what Israel went through, we're looking at family history. So what we need to do is meditate on the greatness of specific works in the history of God's people. If we're to remember our story We can remember that God works greatly. And we also need to remember that God works historically. That there are actual concrete things that God has done for his people and for us that we can give thanks for. So let me just ask, have you ever done um, like a a Thanksgiving-only prayer? Like set yourself the task of just spending some time in prayer only thanking God for things that he's done. Have you ever done that? It's a wild experience because you think you get to the end of the list and then there's just more and more. So this is what what Psalm 111 is inviting us to do, is to remember our story by thanking God for the historic ways he's acted. Now, we need more than nostalgia, though. If we're to remember our story, we can't just treat it all as if everything that mattered happened in the past. As if, um, you know, who God was for them is different from who God is for us. So this is why we need to know, third thing, that God works faithfully. So we need to remember our story because God works greatly. He works historically. And he works Faithfully. So where do we see that in the text? Well, if you look in verse 9, maybe you, there's a sense that this psalm starts with a very tight structure, and then by the end of it, they were running out of letters, and they had to find more things to match the letters. But that's not what's going on here. Um, it's very tightly structured, and it's very thoughtfully crafted. Um, when we look at, at verse 9, we see it says, Holy and awesome is his name. And if we are familiar with the Bible, that doesn't strike us at all. We're just used to seeing things like that in the Bible. It just sounds like what the Bible would say, right? But when we talk about God's name, um, the thing about names, just in general, names are uh, something that give identity. So you could say, this is Evan. And you know, okay, that person But there's also a sense in which uh, names can be a designation of character. So uh, you could, you know, 
call me something, it'd be nice. Um, and that you name something about me and that you're naming a character trait. But you can also, uh, names can carry reputation too. Um, so I can name, so uh, an example that I thought of, which is just so silly, um, that kind of encapsulates this, is uh, the name Weird Al Yankovic. So yeah, you're all laughing, because you know the reputation. He's a silly dude. And you know who it is, the identity, and you, knew something, you know something about his character. Um, maybe not that much. But so a name captures all of these things. And that's true of God's name as well. God has a name. And his name is what he gives Moses on the mountain at Sinai when he is covenanting with him, when he's making a promise to him, when he says that I am gracious and merciful. He says, my name is the Lord, which we read in, these, in our Bibles, in these English Bibles, and we see all caps for the Lord. And that's an indication that it's talking about the divine name, which is not pronounceable. And for uh, a long tradition, you would just replace that with the word for Lord. And so this is the, our translators are helping us out and reminding us that this is God's name. So God's name is not just an indication of who he is, um, his character, his reputation, but it's also specifically here an indication of his covenant faithfulness, the character that he has as someone who keeps his promises. And... Um, what we get in the other two verses before that, verses 7 and 8, is just more of that. If we look and we, we see that um, the psalmist describes God's works as faithful and just. And then his word, his precepts, as trustworthy. And they are to be established forever and ever. So this portion is doing everything it can. The psalmist is giving everything, every tool in his toolkit to try to hammer home the message that God is faithful. That when we talk about God's works, one of the things we're talking about is how God has been the same through every age. That God is the same God for the Israelites as he is for the first century church, as he is for us today. God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, um, This is why the covenant is commanded forever. The promise that God makes is eternal. And so we remember our story because the God who works greatly has worked historically and who is actually working now in the same way. He's faithful to who he is. And we can trust those covenant promises that he's going to be good, that he will care for us, that he's going to provide and deliver and he will make good on his promises because those promises are secured. There is, um, maybe you remember this, it happened earlier this year. Um, on March 27th in Nashville, there was a shooter who walked into a school and killed students and teachers. This was a, a school that was connected with a church, with Covenant Presbyterian Church. Um, that's a church that the pastor uh, went to the same seminary as me and is friends with some of my friends. And in the story of that grief, 
after several weeks away from the pulpit, this pastor entered the pulpit again, um, which I can't even imagine what that would be like, because one of the victims in that was his nine-year-old daughter. And so after weeks of grieving, this pastor, his name's Chad Scruggs, he enters the pulpit and he preaches a sermon on Jesus' um, crucifixion and how he cares for his mother in that moment in, the, in John 19. And what I'm, I'm just going to, there's a story that uh, Chad told at the end of that sermon, which I'm just going to borrow. I'm going to change some things, but it's so important. And it fits so well that I, uh, I feel like I can't do better. So he told a story about how uh, years ago, um, one of his sons wanted a swing. And so he, being the dad he is, he got him this uh, cool like tire swing uh, for the tree and started to set it up. And there's uh, three knots for this thing. You tie it to the tree, and then there's like the rope that hangs from that, and you tie the rope there, and then you tie the, the um, tire, or whatever seat, um, to that second rope, so that there's three knots in succession. And uh, the question is, okay, is this going to be good? If my four-year-old is going to do this. Is it going to be safe? Um, and so you can guess what he did to test it, right? He tried it out. So he sits on the swing, and he's testing to see if these knots are strong enough. And he, he swings on it, and he's a grown man, so he's, not as, he's heavier than a four-year-old. And so he's testing these knots, and eventually he just puts all of his weight on it. And um, do you know what happened to the knots? They, they were well tied, so they got tighter and tighter and tighter. So every time he applied pressure to those knots, they only strengthened. And so when we hear something that's as true and good as God works faithfully, maybe for some of us, we have doubts and we wonder. And what I want to say is that God's covenant promises are like those knots. They are well tied. And you can throw whatever you want against them. And they'll only get tighter. You cannot. There's no sin. There's no failure. There's no doubt that can possibly loosen the knot that connects you with Jesus Christ. Nothing. So whatever your questions are, whatever your doubts, bring them. He can take it. And trust that that knot will be strengthened. It will hold. God's promises will be kept. So, we've been tasked by Psalm 111 with remembering our story, with remembering the story of the world, the true story of the world. And we've seen that the reasons for that are that God works greatly, and he works in concrete, historical ways. And he works faithfully. In short, to quote the psalmist, he works wondrous works. His works are wondrous. 
And because God works wondrously, we must remember the story. Now, the story has a moment of climax, a moment when all of the uh, previous parts of that story have built up to this intense moment. And that moment is Jesus. And Jesus, we find, is one who works faithfully. When he's given an opportunity, either through temptation in the wilderness or at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's given an opportunity to give up, he doesn't. He's faithful. And we confess Um, We confess creeds and confessions like the Apostles' Creed where we talk about what God has done in history. We're talking about Jesus. He was born under the reign of a Caesar. He was born in that world, and he lived during a certain reign of a governor in the Roman Empire. He was tried by Pontius Pilate, who we can look in history books. He's a real person. Really lived. So Jesus works faithfully, he works historically, and ultimately he works greatly. He has accomplished mighty acts for our salvation. And so Jesus, because of Jesus, we can say with the psalmist in verse 9, we can say that God sent redemption to his people. And that redemption is Jesus Christ. Holy and awesome is his name. And this story that we are in These promises, one of those promises is that there will be a new creation, heavens and earth, new heavens and new earth. And in that new heavens and new earth, when we finally come to where we were made to be, when we enter into the glory of that moment, this is what um, famous author, you know, C.S. Lewis, um, when he wrote The Last Battle, he put it like this. It's going to be when we enter that moment. We've been remembering our story. So um, he's going to say, now at last, we are beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one that came before. So this is the story that we're in. Let's remember it together, and let's look to Jesus, our faithful worker who accomplished our salvation. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you tell a great story and that this story is not fiction, but true. We give you thanks that you have accomplished great things for us, great things in history and great things today in our own lives, and that you have shown yourself faithful. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember the story, to remember your wonderful works, and to live in such a way that we can give praise to you with our whole heart. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.